Hello. I am here because I want to say something to you. W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Great River ME1NV, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. I've said the name of those bits of gear so many times, and yet you heard me sort of stumble over them there a little bit, indicating perhaps that my ongoing indecisiveness about how to record my voice continues to infect my sanity. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin, my friends, and on the show today, it's Kyria Traber. Now, if you are a person who came to your Midnight Disease listenership via your Family Ghosts listenership, first, thank you for listening to both shows. It truly does mean a lot to me, and I'm grateful to have you here. Grateful to have you all here, of course, but uh, big shout out to the Ghost family. And episode eight, season two, A Settling in the Bones. We chronicled the story of a really remarkable artist named Kiria Traber, who was trying to thread together a series of very disparate experiences of growing up with these two absentee grandfathers. One of them a periodically unhoused person in the Bay Area. The other a swashbuckling international businessman, or at least in the stories he told about himself, a swashbuckling international businessman. One of them white, the other one black. And Kyria kind of stuck in the middle of the received wisdom about both of them as she tried to find her own way in the world growing up as a mixed-race kid in uncertain circumstances. And I have to say, A Settling in the Bones is maybe the episode that I get the most ongoing mail about when it comes to Family Ghosts episodes. Because in addition to being a very compelling story on its face, one of the things that I was most excited about in this collaboration with Kyria is that we worked really hard to, and I feel like, achieved making a podcast episode that was reflective of the interdisciplinary nature of Kyria's artistry, which is to say, Kyria is a theater maker. Kyria is a researcher. Kyria is a singer-songwriter. Kyria is an actress, a playwright, a documentarian, a writer, a memoirist, a facilitator of cross-cultural dialogues, a kind of artistic anthropologist. I don't know if she would claim the term anthropologist, but but I'm going to use it here. And the, the word that came up a lot during my conversations with Kyria for the making of that story was pastiche, and how it, it just felt like this very fitting word to describe what we were after, because we were trying to weave together a pastiche of experiences and a pastiche of styles and a pastiche of tones and 
it was one of the hardest episodes we ever made. And I don't say that because there was anything amiss with the story or anything negative about the collaboration, but because it just felt so important to try to achieve something as multidimensional as Kyria is, that that would be the most reflective way to present her as a character in an equally multidimensional story. And so as a result, when you listen to that episode, there's a lot going on. <laughs> there are songs, there are monologues, there are interviews, there's first-person storytelling, and it all, hopefully, comes together to create a 45-minute experience that that reflects what it was like for, for Kyria to grow up with these legends around the periphery of her awareness. And it's been really exciting for me to continue to follow Kyria's work in the years since we made that story for Family Ghosts. And when we sat down to record this interview, we did something that I think, if I may, is sort of peak midnight disease, which is to say... There are a lot of podcasts where you might have an author who has just written a book come on an interview show and talk about the achievement of writing this book. But that's not exactly what the kind of thing that we do here. One of the many things that happens in this conversation is that I had the chance to talk to Kyria as she is navigating the process of trying to get herself to finish the process of generating a book draft. I think something that we we did in this conversation, among other things, as you'll hear, is we captured Kyria in a moment where she has a contract to write a novel based on a play that she wrote previously. And she, at least at the time we had the conversation, is really trying to figure out how do I focus all of my different creative identities into the extraordinary challenge of writing a novel. How do I do it? The novel is going to exist, but the means by which it is going to exist, and to some degree the story that it is going to contain, at, at the time Kyria and I spoke, were sort of unknown. And in, in, a, in a different kind of interview, there, the novel exists, the book is there. And so you kind of reverse engineer a conversation about how the author arrived at that endpoint, knowing that in the end, there is this concrete volume in front of you uh, that is filled with pages that feel ultimately like everything that preceded the printing of words on those pages was pointed in that direction. But in this conversation, we know that that volume will eventually exist. But Kyria, at again, at least at the time we spoke, didn't yet know what shape it was going to take. And I felt like it was it was so generous, and not that I was surprised at this generosity because of the kind of artist Kyria is, but it was so generous of Kyria to wade into that space with me. Because, candidly, the moment of publishing a book is a beautiful thing, and I salute everyone who has reached that moment, but it's pretty rare. There's not a lot of people who get to that point. And Kyria eventually will be at that point, because again, she does have a deal to write this book. But what's much more common is the, the stage that Kyria was in at the time we talked, which is, how do I get myself to do this? I know this story matters, and I feel in my bones that a book is the right form for it. 
but good God, what a thing to write a book. Now, that is not to say that book writing is the only thing that we talk about in this conversation. We also talk about slam poetry. We also talk about late-night journal writing. And perhaps most of all, we talk about the bizarre sense of responsibility to the self that is necessary to make the kind of art that lives inside of all of us and how much we simultaneously have access to that self and yet feel like we are not supposed to access that self. Anyway, I loved this conversation, and I'm going to shut up now and just let you listen to it. But before I do, I want to tell you that there are a couple of very exciting ways for you to check out Kyria's work if you find yourself intrigued by this conversation. One is to listen to the podcast Spotlight in Purple, which Kyria produced and hosted. Spotlight in Purple is a three-part narrative nonfiction series which follows the unique creative process of the dance theater collective Sidney L. Mosley Dances. And, you know, if you're interested in a show like The Midnight Disease, I think a narrative podcast series that chronicles the generation of a new dance theater piece might be of interest to you. Um, specifically, the dance theater piece being referenced premiered at Lincoln Center earlier this year. It was called Purple, A Ritual in Nine Spells. And Kyria is, at this very moment, writing and directing an interview-based theater piece called Beyond Punishment, Our Stories of Healing and Resistance. And this is actually running in New York City in just a few weeks on November 30th, December 1st, and December 3rd. Three performances, free tickets to any of those performances are available. I'll have a link in the show notes so that you can snag them. And it is a piece built on interviews with the performers who tell stories of grappling with the intersections and impacts of interpersonal and state violence, encouraging us to imagine justice beyond a punitive system that begets further violence. I tell you about these projects, one, because... I think after you're done listening to Kyria, you're going to want to check out Kyria's work, but also because I think just the the concepts behind both of those projects are so illustrative of the wide range of creative endeavor that Kyria takes on in her practice. Now, very last thing, folks, as I have told you before, my office slash studio is next door to a guy who cuts hair. Usually he's not there when I'm doing interviews. When I was talking to Kyria, he was. And there may be some moments where you can hear bits of the salon conversation. Salonversation drifting through the wall. I did everything I could to mitigate it, but couldn't get it all out. I just don't want you to think you're picking up weird interdimensional hair salon radio signals in the background if you have your headphones turned up high. And don't worry, it won't distract you from this conversation, which I loved so much, and which I take you to right now on WALT. Kyria Traber, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thank you. It is so good to have you here. We have talked about a lot of the things <laughs> that we're going to talk about today before. It's true. <laughs> in other contexts. Um, and I'm really excited to explore them in this context, particularly because one of my favorite things about you 
as an artist to follow is that you strike me as somebody whose values remain consistent even as your mediums shift. Mm. I, if I could, would name some of those things sure. as visibility mm-hmm. because I feel like your work presents worlds that are not often presented, but it doesn't explain them. Mm-hmm. It just presents them. Mm-hmm. And we start kind of in the middle of life in these worlds. So is that intentional? I, as someone who on the surface doesn't share a lot of my identity markers, um, I think where I'm in the lineage is a radical selfhood, right? Like a sense of myself Mm. and an allegiance to that which I need, that which heals me, that which nourishes me, that which I desire, et cetera, in whatever I do. And, And because I have a sense of self that is political as a Black queer person, that's also going to be about other people as well. It's going to be about the community. It's going to be about bringing folks with me. It's going to be about um, being more intersectional, if you will. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but it, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's, you know, what pleases me. <laughs> yes. So you also talked about radical selfhood. I have been working on this project recently where uh, it's about a, a very famous Hollywood director. And this director once said in an interview... My only goal in my work is to answer my own questions. Mm, mm-hmm. I love that. Is that in the vein of what you're talking about by pursuing radical selfhood in your work? A hundred percent. Who said that? Francis Ford Coppola. Well, hey, listen. <laughs> Wisdom from all places. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and, you know, let me lean into this since we started here. There's something, you know, to be said about me doing that mm-hmm. as opposed to someone like Francis Ford Coppola mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the space that I've been invited to take up in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, as someone who started writing literally as like a depressed teenager, yeah. it was all just about trying to untangle my own questions about existence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we sort of backed into where I usually start, <laughs> yeah. but it feels um, organic to me. So, so let me ask you then, if you think of your teenage self writing from a place of depression, and you think of Kyria today, and you think of the phrase, the midnight disease, what does Kyria look like mm. in the throes of the disease? Mm-hmm. But two, is there anything that has been consistent about those throws mm-hmm. <laughs> from teenagehood to, to nowhood. Yeah, shockingly consistent, actually. But first, I want to say I'm so glad we backed into this because mm. now that I'm a listener of this podcast, because there's been some episodes I've been like sweating about that question. <laughs> like, how am I going to answer it? So thank you for helping me <laughs> get there. Thank you for listening. <laughs> yeah. um, when I first heard the phrase, which I I only heard from you in this podcast, I definitely thought of myself as a young writer, which was very much, I can't sleep. I'm going to write on mm. this Macintosh SE. Mm-hmm. Doot, 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 doot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that very resonant, chunky keyboard click. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Can and... you hear like the springs under the letters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's really nostalgic. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I literally wrote through the night. 
um, until like three, four in the morning uh, because I couldn't sleep. And I kept that up into my mid 20s. Mm-hmm. There were times like when I be- when I moved from writing for necessity to professional practice in a deadline, you know, crunch, it would be like, well, here I am at four in the morning again, because it's the only thing I know how to do. But now I don't do that anymore. I don't really write late anymore. I kind of like shut off at nine o'clock, <laughs> which is super weird. Like I'm I'm awake, but I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting not to have that relationship with my creative practice anymore. And is that because the writing is serving a different purpose now? Or what do you attribute that change to? Great question. I try not to have an existential crisis about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, yeah, you know, I'm I'm in a, also familiar to possibly many of your listeners or previous guests, like that moment of like not wanting to lose myself to the professional practice mm. not wanting to lose the the purpose not because i don't still have creative ideas not because i'm not so excited but because the pursuit of feeding myself mm-hmm. is really exhausting yeah um, and you mean literally feeding yourself literally not like feeding. nourishing your no yeah soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like groceries and rent um yes so also, I think like many people, my habits changed in the pandemic, mm-hmm. like just, I I still have a hard, I was just saying this to someone yesterday, I have a really hard time keeping track of like how many years have passed. Like I, like, I was just saying this to my fiance yesterday. Yeah. Like 2018 still feels like last year to me. In a it was, way. it was last year. Uh, what? Right, was. Thank you. You were in a place where we acknowledge <laughs> that 2018 was last year. <laughs> thank you so much. So I'm like, how many years have I been doing XYZ? I don't know. And I'll throw this at you too. 2016 to 2019 was one year. <laughs> yes, sure. And Joe Biden was elected last fall. <laughs> Great. I agree. Like, I concur. <laughs> that is the proper interpretation of recent time. <laughs> thank you. That feels really accurate to me as well. I would be interested to unpack this with you a little bit if you if it feels welcome. Sure. <laughs> um, because I also have a relationship with writing from when I was young that it was something to be done at night. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that that was the only time I felt like I wouldn't be interrupted or mm-hmm. caught in the act or something. Mm-hmm. But it was that And I don't know if I had a conscious sense of this at the time. This is just something I've thought about since. It felt like nighttime. I had the same relationship with the time of night as I do with the recency of 2018, Mm. which is to say traditional interpretations of time stop and the night begins and it will end at some indeterminate point. Mm. And there's no difference between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. really. Yeah. Because it's the night. Yes. And midnight is the midpoint of that period. But, and and it's a cool word. (laughs) But there's something about trying to express thoughts and feelings that are too expansive for my body. That necessitates a time of experience that has no obvious boundary. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> concur yeah well thank you you're you're like taking me back to this relationship i mean that's why it is a little disorienting for me not to have that relationship because yes i used to be 
a resident of the night hours, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I I have historically loved that time. And it is like, even though it might have been some kind of circumstance-induced mental health issues that meant I wasn't sleeping, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was my time. Yeah. And uh, the darkness of it is cloaking. And I'm not, I mean, I'm saying things that are almost cliche, but like it's still felt precious and it felt possible. Anything could happen. Can you say a little bit more about the darkness felt cloaking? Because you you said that and then you said, I'm saying things that are a little cliche. And I'm like, wait, that's beautiful. <laughs> what What is that? What is being cloaked? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, yeah, like literally less people can see you. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. And so, and people are asleep. I mean, I think it's the same thing that people who like wake up at five in the morning feel like it's like, this is unbothered time. Mm, I, okay. I don't expect anyone to be wanting anything from me or the concerns of a teenager observing me, right? Like I get to do what I want to do and I can be irreverent and I can be risque and all of that. And it's private. And I the, the experiments with self mm-hmm. get to happen in these hours. Right. So it's very tempting then to draw a line from experiments of self to radical yeah. self-love, radical yeah, yeah, yeah. self-expression. Yeah. Not to overfixate on it, but does the use of I'm, – I'm really intrigued by your use of cloak. Did you think of writing as letting something out, mm. or was it a place to – because hearing you say that, I'm tempted to interpret it as I have feelings that I need to hide. Mm. I'm worried that if I don't write them down, they will come out mm. in an uncloaked time when people might see them, sure. and uh, there will be repercussions for that. So if I write them down – on this Macintosh and presumably hide the file somewhere where <laughs> others won't find it. Floppy disk lost a time, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, tragic, mm, but maybe a blessing. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, mm. I wouldn't have maybe consciously admitted it, but I think you're really onto something with the like, the sort of, I mean, you didn't say it, but the shame. Mm. And, you know, I have thoughts that are shameful. I have fantasies that are. I mean, a lo- I mean, let's let's be honest. Fourteen-year-old Kira was writing a lot of like bodice ripping, <laughs> rom- uh-huh. romantic, uh-huh. whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's that, but also, I got to. I kept coming back to it. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. again, it was like a place to visit. So that's the other part of it. Is it was very much escape. I grew up very ostracized, you know, an outsider among outsiders. And even if I wanted to express my true self in public, it wouldn't have been received with any kind of grace. So this is where I got to live out a life that I wasn't able to live because I felt so constrained by my surroundings. What do you think gave you... Because there's, there's a version of that kind of upbringing where a person does not feel that there can be any outlet Mm -hmm. for these feelings. Mm -hmm. But you gave yourself permission to at least write them down. Mm. Do you have any sense of where you got that permission from? Mm. Actually, yeah. Poets in the schools. Mm -hmm. So, like, three cheers for teaching artists. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember... 
concretely the the day that the first poet came into our school and taught us about poetry and she gave us this visualization exercise where we like closed our eyes this is third grade closed our eyes and we imagined a garden and she spent a lot of time helping us like picture like what kind of flowers what you know what what's over here in the garden is over there. And then we like crossed through the garden and went to a fence. We climbed from the fence and hopped over the fence. And she's like, that's where poetry is. And I was like, <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> wow. And it was the permission I needed. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote furiously immediately mm-hmm. and never stopped. Wow. Do you... Remember, if you're comfortable saying, yeah, you mentioned like bodice ripping romance. <laughs> sure. Do you remember? Was that the main thing that you were writing when, oh, when gosh, you probably permissioned yourself in this way? Probably. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a very, you know, <laughs> sexually curious, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> lonely <laughs> child. Um, yeah. I, well, and. And I was writing about my relationship with my mom, mm-hmm. you know, a single parent, only child, lots of boundary crossing, much fodder for therapy and for bad poems when you're 14. <laughs> <laughs> bad poems or the best poems. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's probably, yeah, I think that's all I was really writing about. It, my writing didn't get interesting until, well, then I, I mean, okay, so then another Shout out to California arts programming. There was this thing called California State Summer School for the Arts, um, which I think got renamed to Inner Spark. Don't know if it still exists. It was at CalArts. I was very poor, so I didn't get to participate in many extracurriculars. But my creative writing teacher was like, you should apply to this. And then like, she helped me figure out how to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I went away for a summer to this summer school for the arts where I got to be like in a track of creative writers and we were all like treated like young professionals and that it blew my mind I to be able to call myself a writer uh-huh. um, and there my work got more interesting and what form was your writing mainly taking at this time was it poetry was it prose it was poetry and fiction and that summer I wrote like you're supposed to do a final project and in a very tender foreshadowing. I wrote like a poetic solo performance <laughs> uh, that I actually cast some actors in to be like uh-huh. background players, uh-huh. which uh-huh. was not what any of my creative writing peers were doing. <laughs> Where did I get that idea? I don't know. <laughs> do you do you remember what it was about? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we spending so much time talking about my teenage writing? It's so embarrassing. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, okay, let me see if I can pitch it in a way that isn't embarrassing. Okay. okay. Um, Just so you know, I I always think this is the stuff that is the most interesting. You know? Great. <laughs> you and, like, one other person. <laughs> um, it, it foreshadowing for the novel that I'm writing. Um, I was dealing with some adult stuff. A friend of mine was living in an abusive home and was kicked out and living ended up sort of unhoused tooling around with some meth heads and she was like my best friend my and also like you know proto queer I was in love with her and she was in real serious trouble and I didn't know what to do 
And there was no competent adults that had good answers for us. And so I wrote about her and I wrote about my longing to help her. And I wrote about what it felt like to witness what she was going through. And I wrote probably something from her perspective, which was probably so ill-conceived. <laughs> Respectfully, you, you thank you for sharing that, first of all. I know I I asked you to share something that you probably did not come here expecting to talk <laughs> <No>. <laughs> about. Um, so I want to like say that I appreciate that you were willing to share that, and also to offer again with respect. That's I don't think that's embarrassing at all. I I mean I can't tell you how many of these conversations I sit in with folks, mm-hmm. and they talk about, and there's no less validity to this journey. They talk about the difficulty of over the course of a long artistic life, mm-hmm. realizing that what they needed to write about was exactly what was happening mm. to them. Sure. And you somehow found an ability to do that as a teenager. Mm. I think that's really interesting. I, th- mm. I think it's really interesting that, I mean, I hear you that you were also writing other like, escapist things yeah. too. But again, that willingness and, and bravery to process what you were actually experiencing through art, mm-hmm. I don't know, just to reflect back at you, that mm-hmm. th- that seems to be a journey that it takes other artists much longer to get to. Mm-hmm. Looking at myself as an example, like, it wouldn't have occurred to me to write about anything else because I needed the writing in order to stay sane, to, in order to, mm-hmm. I mean, sanity's overrated, but <laughs> in order to make sense of what was happening around me. Mm-hmm. I needed the writing. Right. And it helped me to keep finding direction and purpose and, and ability to sort of like keep sustaining myself and not just sort of turn to other vices or or just collapse. Mm-hmm. This makes me think of that, the, the Coppola-ism of mm-hmm. um, writing to find answers to your own questions and how, you know, I think a lot of people would hear the idea of an artist writing for that reason mm-hmm. and think that there's a kind of navel-gazing narcissism to it. Like, what if there was a film where <laughs> all of the lines were recorded backwards? Like, we're... N- again, I totally valid guy. creative choice. Yes. <laughs> Have been that guy? Right. Don't, um, but what... It just strikes me that what you're talking about is using writing to find answers to your own questions, at this time in your life at least. Yeah. That are really urgent answers yeah. to pressing life matters. Yes. And that writing seems like the most available pathway to a viable answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that's changed. I think my questions are more self-aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have, you know, other tools to mm-hmm. answer questions, mm-hmm. thank God. But yeah, I don't think that's changed. Yeah. So to go back to the this version of yourself that if i'm hearing you right around this time is still staying up late at night writing yeah in addition to now having a sort of meaningful daytime outlet yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for it do you remember any sense that your relationship to your your night residency um <laughs> transformed or or changed because from the way you've described it you know, in the earliest part of your life, yeah, it was kind of like the only time you could do this, the only time you could yeah. be with these thoughts, be with these ideas and feelings. 
And now that you were starting to have a chance to engage with it at other times, how did that affect the nightly behavior? Oh, it just gave me more permission. I mean, it was probably the first time, well, first of of many times where I found my people, quote unquote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, here I was with a bunch of other folks who were like, yes, okay, it's 10 o'clock. Let's get into it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See you in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh wow yeah we're like haggard 15 year olds being like oh yeah last night wow slept like an hour (laughs) really (laughs) oh yeah that's amazing it's surprising i've never heard anybody say that before really oh yeah i feel very vulnerable in this moment actually i'm realizing oh um because very often when i tell i still stay up far too late doing the things yeah and when i tell people that i do that uh, I get a lot of question eye about it. So oh. I think it was just very striking for me in this moment to hear that at the age of, I think you said 15, yeah. you found other people who were like, were you up late last night writing? Because I was up late last night. Right? Let's talk about it. Isn't that cool that yeah. we were doing that? Yeah. What were those conversations like? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, it felt like trying on... Like I said, like we were treated like your art is as important as whatever math test, right? Mm. And then you're like swapping techniques to like be really good at this thing that some that suddenly the establishment around you is taking seriously. It's not only it's not just your private thing anymore. It's like what you're here to do, and it's really validated and and has rewards attached to it and all these things. And so we were just like yeah, like, that's what I'm saying about this. Like, we weren't, well, some people were smoking cigarettes. But, <laughs> but you know, we were, like, you know, m- literally or metaphorically smoking the cigarettes, being like, yeah, last night was so rough. Because, like, that was part of the performance of being uh-huh. a real writer, you uh-huh. know? Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was also being sort of, like, rewarded in yeah. this way. Oh, 100%. I think, the like, the most dangerous and beautiful thing of introducing a tender-aged person yeah. to creativity is... Like, the most valuable thing you can tell them is when you feel it, you have to do it. Yes. Like, when you feel it, you have to put the pen on the page. Yes. Otherwise, it will go away. Yeah. And that can build bad habits. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Unhealthy (laughs) habits. But it's also, it's the only path, right? It's like the only path, at least initially. Initially, yeah. I I don't know. It's like, I feel like I hear you describing a, um, like, a shedding almost Mm -hmm. of... It's like you're describing this version of yourself that walked through the world with this, like, secret night residency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you found this cohort of people yeah. who were like, oh, we all live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We live there, too. That's what it felt like, yeah. I guess that's the que- the reason I asked the question about did it change your relationship to it? Like, uh, did that go from, you know, being, like, a lonely place to a, a kind of community? Yeah, I think so. Like, when I got home, because that was just a summer. It was maybe a month which was a long time for mm-hmm. a teenager um, to be away from home. But um, when I got home, it was like, they're out there. Yeah, I certainly, I never put this together. My mother is an artist, a visual artist, and I, we were so poor. <laughs> and so I was so adamant about not being an artist because I didn't want to be poor anymore. I think having that experience was one of a few factors that sort of propelled me towards 
getting out of the small town I was in, going to college, finding other writing communities, and then ultimately it being my profession mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because it was validated. And yes, I did come from a family of artists, mm-hmm. but not working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a big difference between people in your family of origin modeling artistic practice as something that is cool and interesting to do and modeling it as a reason for being. Or even something viable. I mean, it definitely, mm-hmm. I would say it is a reason for being. I was just home last October and I had, I just got to sit in on a really sweet conversation between my grandmother and mother who are both visual artists. And they were actually talking about being blocked as artists. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, like not not being able to find the spark. But I, and so, which is, you know, frustrating. They were both frustrated. But I was just sitting in awe of these two women who are my mother and grandmother having this intimate artist-to-artist conversation about, like, yes, this is this is what I've tried and it hasn't worked and, and I'm still trying. And I, I, you know, basically saying, I'm very much paraphrasing, but like, I haven't really been able to live, but I know it's still out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. Like, I really come from these people. That's so beautiful. So it was being modeled as a reason to live, but not a way to live. <laughs> Plenty more to come with Kyria Traber, right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At some point, I know that you, I know that um, slam poetry became part of your... Uh, You didn't tell me this was going to be a shame parade. (laughs) (laughs) I'm leaving. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We'll get to your current work too, I promise. Okay. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting to me about the fact that you did slam poetry, having characterized your youthful self as a writer the way you have is that in my conception and limited experience, because I will join you in, I have a a embarrassing past as a slam poet too. Um, (laughs) Shout out to the New Yorican. Um, Oh, yes. It's, it's like 
the inverse of I will write down these tender thoughts and no one will ever see them. <laughs> True. It's not just that you're sharing them publicly. It's that you are sharing them declaratively. Declaratively. Rhythmically. <laughs> and Often shouting for no reason. Often shouting for no reason. <laughs> it's like more than theatrical. <laughs> yes. Extra theatrical. And you don't have the veil of music, which often allows... You know, like in music, a lot of times people are like, oh, that's that's pretty raw. But, you know, it's a song. We're trying to write a song. It's fine. <laughs> Slam poetry? No. <laughs> oh, this is a great send up. And it, up it only poetry. rhymes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, how, how did you, how'd you find it? And Yeah. Well, okay. So I do think Slam came out of that kind of necessity to declare self. Mm-hmm. And to take on others with it, right? So like declaring self privately is one thing. Slam is like, and you're not going to forget it. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to let you not hear me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's synonymous with political organizing mm-hmm. in in New York, but also in all the major cities where it became a thing in Chicago and the Bay Area, et cetera. So... It's not that big of a surprise that I leapt there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. as I told you in my, um, you know, my creative writing thing was like uh, final at this summer school was already like a solo performance, poetic, mm-hmm. la la. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a very performative person. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I was a theater kid for want of a theater program because uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> we literally didn't have one. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it it made a lot of sense to me. And, and also I had, I was living in this small rural white town this in this cultural white environment but i had grown up my first seven years in the bay area very influenced by like hip-hop culture um in the late 80s and early 90s and so that was in me i absorbed it really early and like strongly like you know the tape recorded you know this but other people don't know this there are tape recordings of me as a six-year-old rapping Mm -hmm. quite profound rap for a (laughs) (laughs) six-year-old um and so the cultural route was like, thank God, oh my gosh, in the woods mm-hmm. where I was surrounded by all this, like, you know, this monocultural experience, like, oh, here is some Afrocentric culture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that I recognize. And then here is a chance for me to declare myself. And then this is something that a friend of mine said. She grew up in um, Vancouver and as a brown girl in a white town and expressed, like, finding the stage was a place for her to claim the narrative about herself. Like there was so much narrative about her as this outsider brown girl, but being on stage was, yes, look at me as I tell you to. Yes, yes. And so that was slam for me. Wow. I wouldn't have thought of this until you just said that, but there's something about slam that if you write, well, like this is a very... um, non-original statement about slam poetry, which is that oftentimes if you read it on the page, it doesn't do much for you. Sure. Because it does not have the animating force of the person performing it. But if we take that one step further, you could read the professed experience of somebody on a page. Mm -hmm. And if it scares you or Mm -hmm. challenges your worldview or undercuts your perception of certain things in culture, 
it's just words on a page mm -hmm. and you can put your own spin on it. Mm -hmm. You can say like, oh, well, this person's angry. Mm -hmm. Or you can say like, they don't really mean this. Mm -hmm. Or it, you can do whatever you want because there's no person attached to it. Mm -hmm. But slam and theater, yes. I suppose, but to stick with slam for a minute, it erases that space. That's right. It yeah. makes it so that these words can only be filled by this being. Yes. And you have to contend with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And, it, you know, slam in, in, in its competitive form is also like an interactive sport. <laughs> right. Like right. It requires the audience to engage. Yeah. So would you say, was this a point where a, a political awareness started to enter your writing or had that been there already at this point? Good question. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that was not very eloquent, but yes. <laughs> And do you remember any initial causes that it felt particularly important to you to support through? Yeah, I mean, I was I was very concerned with the outsider. Um, mm -hmm. Like, did I come out through Poetry Slam? Probably, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I've, I spoke about my racial identity overtly in ways that I was only invited to when, like, thrust upon me, like, what do you think, black girl, you know, um, prior to Slam. I'm really struck, as you're describing this, by how in a relatively short period of time, you have moved from only expressing these ideas on a page in private to public declaration. Sure. Unmistakable embodiment of these ideas by you specifically. Yeah. And I'm curious if you remember what the physical sensation of that was. Did oh, it feel... So good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was actually... Okay. Since we're going there, God, no one listened to this episode. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I was a 4-H kid, uh -huh. which is farm club for boys and girls. Um, <laughs> it's the shortest way to say it if you don't know what 4-H is. Um, but I raised chickens and uh, rabbits and I showed them at the fair and da-da-da. Um, but I was also 4-H club president two terms. Um, <laughs> Re-elected? Yes. And there was, it's a two-term limit. Otherwise, I would have been elected again. I'm otherwise, sure. you would still be the president. <laughs> I would still be the president. <laughs> um, and that was the first moment of public speaking. I was I had to run the meetings. Mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. sitting in the front of this room of like dorky farm kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like cracking jokes and everybody's laughing and I have them in the palm of my hand and I'm like, the power. <laughs> <laughs> no, it felt so, so, so good. Mm -hmm. It felt like I belonged for the first time in my life. Oh my God, am I saying that I am? I feel like that's true. And can I just ask, because this feels like an important question about this moment. Was the feeling of belonging that you were the president of the 4-H club or was the feeling of belonging mm -hmm. that you were in the front of the room oh, yeah. speaking? It had nothing to do with 4-H. It okay. had everything okay. to do with my very funny jokes that everyone was laughing at. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you great. missed that part. <laughs> um, I, was, I was charming. I was compelling. People were laughing. People were with me. Like, and then I, w and I started Slam like that same semester or whatever. Ah, okay. And so okay. it was like, ah, the stage, the microphone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every, like people who talk about, I get it. I get what stage fright is. I understand that. I've certainly been nervous to say a thing in front of people. And I've, I've had, you know, quite overwhelming moments of stage fright occasionally in my life. 
But for the most part, all I feel is euphoria. Mm. I'm just like incredibly present, but also like watching myself. Like when I, you know, people talk about flow and the flow state. Like mm-hmm. I, f- I felt that most earliest in my life mm-hmm. on stage mm-hmm. in front of an audience. Yeah. Can we just pause here t- to say like, what a remarkable thing yeah. to go from <laughs> being 14, I think you said when you started doing this night writing in earnest. Honestly, probably earlier. Probably. Earlier. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. To go in the space of just a few years. Yeah. From feeling like I have all of these experiences that it feels like no one else wants to know about, that it feels like it is unsafe to share with anybody else. Yeah. To when I talk about these things into a microphone, I am the queen. Yeah. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) Wow. I had not put it together like that. But yeah, thank you for that reflection. Yeah, it is. I mean, who knows where it came from? Because it wasn't my family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're all like really devout introverts. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know why I had that gumption. What was your mom's artistic practice that you observed when you were young? Oh, yeah. So she was in art school when I was like between, like she started when she was pregnant and she graduated when I was like maybe three or four or something. And so she was always at her, like she had one of those um, tall, like bar set style, like drawing desks. Mm-hmm. She had her exacto blades and her fancy colored pencils and her charcoals and her watercolors and her tempera paints and Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I remember the smell and taste of all those things and (laughs) like because toddler Uh um and like take me to an art store and I'll just like be in heaven Mm -hmm. because it just reminds me of those early years Mm -hmm. and she was doing assignments um so there's her copy of a Gauguin that's in our house Mm -hmm. that was an assignment Mm -hmm. um that I like can you know trace with my finger without seeing it and there's um georgia o'keefe's flowers i think and like other things and then her own work um she's she's a graphic designer mostly um or that's what she was training to be so there was a lot of like print work and like i you know i i have a lot of feelings about font <laughs> which i got from my mother yes um, this is a safe space for those feelings thank you. by the way thank you. um and long live serifs <laughs> <laughs> yes um but then also she got into collage really heavily in a certain period i think for her honestly that was like a period of experimentation she's not like collage eh. but mm-hmm. i'm like that's what i like absorbed as her art form so mm-hmm. it's really mm-hmm. weird to me she's over it because just like the way my mother this is like something only a child would say right but the way my mother can cut a straight line mm-hmm. is so impressive like mm-hmm. she could cut anything out and i was just i would just sit in awe and be like how do her hands move like that she does work that like some might consider to be kind of like twee or overly or nostalgic but there's but she's also like a fan of like um edward gory and uh-huh. so yeah. she's also got the macabre like just in the corner like just a little bit there's always a little sad or dark or drippy or something <laughs> do you think she felt like an outsider oh god 100 percent. yeah uh-huh. yeah absolutely. okay because I, hearing you line all these things up next to each other it's sort of tempting for me to make an interpretation that's like well, there is the impulse to make things on paper, mm-hmm. whether it's images or words. Mm-hmm. And that is an impulse of its own merit mm-hmm. and power. But then there is also the sense of separateness mm. that I hear you saying you felt very strongly. Mm-hmm. 
And it seems like maybe a difference just because you were saying, like, I don't know where I got this from, mm-hmm. even though, you know, your mom and your grandmother were both artists. Mm-hmm. That it was almost like there was a sense for you that instead of the art being a companion to separateness, mm. it was a pathway out. Oh, yeah. And I don't know where that comes from necessarily, but that does seem like a meaningful difference. Wow. And I want to talk to my mom about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does seem like a real distinction in the way that Ivan dealt with this midnight disease. (laughs) Yes, yes. We're going to step away one more time, folks, and take a quick break. Back in a second with more of my conversation with Kiria Traber. You're listening to The Midnight Disease. I associate with your practice yeah. is listening. Mm, mm-hmm. And I know that you do podcast production and editing of your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretending to, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're doing it, it's real. Great. You also do culture work, yeah. facilitation. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of two things I want to say about this. One is that I have noticed over the course of doing this podcast that I have absorbed a listening practice of yours. Oh, really? Which is from the first time you and I ever spoke, you would do this thing where you would vocalize in this way when someone said something that impacted you. And this feels weird to imitate in front of you, but I'm just going to do it. And I apologize (laughs) if it does not sound like you feel like you sound. Sure. Um, But like... Somebody will say something, you'll go and 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 you'll go like, mm. <laughs> uh-huh. almost like you can taste it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that is such a wonderful gift to give to somebody in a conversation where people are speaking sincerely, because it's a way of saying, "I hear that. I'm impacted by what you just shared. I'm not interrupting you. I'm just letting you know that it landed." And I I hear myself doing that. Interesting. On this show. Like, <laughs> I, I, I mostly take them out in the edits, but um, <laughs> when I'm sitting and listening to myself in conversation with other people, it's just my little audio track is all these little <laughs> teeny blips on the waveform of like, mm, mm. <laughs> the person talks about whatever. Yes. Um, I resemble that. <laughs> do you remember when you started doing that? Or huh. actively, when active listening became a part of your practice? No, I don't. I I really don't. It's interesting because we talked about SLAM, which Mm -hmm. is an Afro-diasporic art tradition, and Afro-diasporic arts are very much call and response. Okay. So whether I got that from SLAM or it fit like a hand in a glove, I don't know. Oh, that's it. Yeah, and there is that phenomenon in SLAM where somebody says something and you hear the audience go like like snap or go like, that's right, or something like that. Yeah, As I said, you know, I was a precocious and absorbent young child absorbing black arts around me, which I'm grateful even though my mother is white, she made a concerted effort to expose me to black arts. So 
it's very possible that I just absorbed it from being immersed in black art forms. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I'm interested in this is you have gone on this journey where you have ascended to being the queen. <laughs> And that the, the your and that your royalty emanates. <laughs> oh my God, wait! Can we pause on that for one second? Yes. There's this thing that I'm contending with that in my life, at different points, people have gone, "Oh, you're so regal." <laughs> She's so regal. <laughs> and in the first time that I really noticed this, it's in grad school, and I had a very bad experience there, and a lot of it was super racially loaded. I was like, "Those racists," mm-hmm. but then. It keeps happening, and it keeps happening with people of all different races and genders. Okay. <laughs> and and I, <laughs> um, and like I was I was talking with a friend uh, who we were doing a project together, and I was like, "Oh, people just think I'm so uptight, you know?" And they call me regal, and and they're like, "That's a leap from regal to uptight." Like I don't know if those are the same thing. Yeah. And then and then I was at a friend's wedding party the other day and I was like walking from the bathroom and someone's like oh you look so regal I'm like god damn it (laughs) (laughs) I'm just standing here so the fact that you're now calling me a queen is hilarious (laughs) well just to say I totally understand where you get the association like I think of the British royalty as uptight so uptight yeah Uh, I do not mean it in that sense at all thanks I can't speak for these other jokers that you're talking to although I suspect that they (laughs) probably mean it more in the spirit that I'm trying to express. Okay. Which is to say, because your presence is not uptight. Um, I just mean in the sense that it seems like the lesson that you got in from this 4-H experience mm-hmm. was how good it feels to preside. Yes. Which isn't like, like preside is not rule. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. The person who presides over something is indisputably in charge. Mm. But... It's like they're aware that their authority is informed by that over which they preside Mm -hmm. and those over whom they preside. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me about this shift in your practice towards facilitation and listening Mm -hmm. is that it's like you have just ascended to this place where, if I'm hearing you right, you feel like this is home. Home is is presiding. Mm. To this practice that is about yielding mm. control of the microphone. Ooh. And I wonder how you how you see those points as being connected. I think I disagree that those things are dichotomous. Okay. Cuz one in my writing, I'm a listener because I'm very I do a lot of interview-based and research-based uh-huh. writing. Uh-huh. So I've always been really interested in being an observer. I mean, I like what you're suggesting about presiding versus ruling. Mm -hmm. While it's really valuable for me to listen and to truly empathetically listen, to truly be invested in what others are bringing to the conversation on the table, I'm still in the sort of, I'm making a gesture here of like um, uh, a magician or a, (laughs) like I'm still the alchemist. Yes, I was going to say sorcerer. Thank you. Yes, the sorcerer, the alchemist (laughs) of the word at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm saying, here we are, you and me, we've gathered in this space. Right. I want to make a new spell. I'm inviting you. Mm -hmm. Bring your breath, bring your body, bring your voice to this spell, and I'll make something wonderful out of it. Right. 
it's still your microphone at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way. No. Um, I mean, I would say I really feel strongly that, you know, there's no such thing as objective reporting or objective um, presentation of work. And and, and oftentimes I think work that gets touted in the podcasting or, or radio space as like so pure is when the narrator is out of it. And I'm like, yeah, because editing isn't a whole craft. Come on, get out of here. Yeah, that's nonsense. So I don't, I think it, we're always, mm-hmm. I think it's more genuine to say yes. it's your microphone, right. you the producer, you the editor. Right. So let's talk a little bit more then about this writing practice of basing things in interview. Yeah. I remember at one point you were engaged in two simultaneous playwriting projects. Sure. One was a very personal project Mm -hmm. based in your own childhood, Mm -hmm. which if I'm not mistaken has now become the the book that you're writing. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you were also engaged in deep historical research because you were writing a historical fiction play mm-hmm. about, and I'm going to forget the artist's name. Jo- Does it start with a J? I write a lot of these, so I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> she was uh, a singer. Josephine Baker? Yes, thank you. Oh, yeah. Um, I should have just said Josephine Baker. <laughs> That's why I was like, it doesn't start with a J. I didn't want to be wrong. I'm embarrassed. Okay. So... <laughs> You were you were working on those projects at the same time. Yeah. So were you approaching both of those the same way through interview or were they different? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um I keep I keep pausing. These are great questions. <laughs> <laughs> because I've asked myself that. Mm-hmm. Like, do I have different methods or is my method always the same? In some ways I think I want my method to always be the same because I'm such a Jill of all trades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and the more that I can codify my process, the more I can create space for myself to make and so on and so forth. Yeah. I think we're in a moment where there's a lot of folks like me, like us, who do a lot of different kinds mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. That's more accepted than it was before, which is great. But it's still kind of hard to carve out a space for yourself in the professional world. Um, people are like, so what do you do? And you're like, uh, <laughs> today? <laughs> um, and so the more I can be clear about my my approach. Um, I mean, even I'm going to take today and be like, well, my values are consistent across all my work. Thank you, Sam Dingman. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, but to answer your question, between the personal work and the commissioned historic piece about um, Josephine Baker, was I approaching them similarly? Short answer is yes. The Josephine Baker one, so I'm I'm lucky to have a few of these sort of commissioned relationships where I get an ongoing series of projects to write these short scripts about historical figures. Sometimes I get to write in their voice Mm -hmm. as like a short solo show for an actor. And sometimes I get to write more like biographical Mm -hmm. narrative pieces. They're really fun. There's a lot of research. Some of them are more contemporary. So I get to interview live human beings, yeah. <laughs> either them or who know the, knew them. And then sometimes they long deceased. And so then it's just into the stacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so for Josephine Baker, like I got to work with the Schomburg to get um, connection to French museums to get some like footage that only is in France and like I had my friend who's a francophone like translate some of the videos for me and like mm-hmm. it's it's really involved <laughs> um, all for like a you know 
twenty minute piece, um, <laughs> and I'm I'm quoting a lot of Josephine Baker. She spoke a lot in her life. She has a lot of speeches, so a lot of the text is her own words. And so it's 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 a, it's again sort of taking it's the alchemist, it's the sorcerer taking her words mm-hmm. and remixing them into a new context. So there's a lot of adhe- adherence to fact and mm-hmm. and what actually happened and what actually she would have said to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Whereas my own work, my own childhood, I get to say what happened. I get to be the arbiter of truth. Right, right. But that's almost scarier uh-huh. because it's it's something that we all have to face. Like, what is the truth of our life story? Do the people we love remember it the same way? Mm-hmm. Do they make the same meaning of it that we do? Yeah. What does that mean about our relationships and ourselves, whether or not they do or don't? So it's a really difficult slow process yeah but yes i'm doing research about northern california in the late 90s okay and Uh calling my friends and being like tell me a story Mm -hmm. (laughs) about Mm -hmm. you in this time (laughs) Uh Uh so i have like you know an hour on like my one friend's manga obsession because Uh it's Uh research (laughs) yeah 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 that fear though of whether the way that you're going to present something that isn't part of the capital H historical record Mm -hmm. it can be freeing Mm -hmm. and it can also be halting Mm -hmm. and I don't want to mortify you but I want to read you a tweet that you put up recently oh gosh (laughs) (laughs) and I'm curious if what we're talking about is at all behind this tweet which is you wrote dear me (laughs) finish your stories people want to read them watch them relish in them Stop biting your own tongue for fear of the trouble it may cause. With love, you. (laughs) Yeah, busted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I was talking about. What was I... What was I talking about on that day? I don't know if I can remember. Um, Oh, that's okay. You don't have to say about that particular tweet. I mean, it seems like a sentiment that could apply to this entire novel project not yes. formerly play now novel project can to whatever extent you're comfortable can you describe that story at all yeah yeah so um it's a coming of age story of um a young queer black girl in northern california in the late 90s in a rural town which is Probably I'm going to make it literally set in Mendocino, California, which is where I grew up. Uh, And it's a really unique environment in that it's at once former artist colony, former political radical escapist, Mm -hmm. and major drug economy. Hmm. (laughs) So... Quite a place, <laughs> quite an intersection. And then to be among that, a 14-year-old kid trying to make sense of the world mm-hmm. um, and all her identities. That's a hell of a, a set of ingredients for a cauldron for you as yeah. a spell spellcaster. <laughs> right. Is it fair to say that the things you want to write about originating from that place and that time period are many of the same things that the 14-year-old Kyria was up late writing about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've I've jokingly said, like, you know, like, the writer's curse is like, one day I'm going to write about all this. Like, that's what this is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
so it's yeah at the in the moment i was writing from inside of it and just trying to write a little pocket of of solace for myself where i could feel valued and and valid and then now i'm writing from outside of it with you know the distance of time and education to try to make sense of the whole thing mm-hmm. for her <laughs> yeah so tell me if i'm wrong or if i'm misreading it yeah but you know in, in the earlier part of our conversation we were talking about how good it felt to you how exhilarating it was yeah to speak these experiences into rooms to declare them not just as experiences that exist in theory, but mm-hmm. that as experiences and realities that happened for you and that this is how you wanted to declare them. And that that was, there was a regalness <laughs> to that <laughs> feeling, to use your least favorite term. Sure. From the way you're talking about the book project and from that tweet, mm-hmm. I feel like I hear you experiencing some reticence about it, some some hesitation. Yeah. Can you say at all what feels different about doing it as a book? Oof. Um, well, let me try to unpack this because I'm figuring that out in real time. We can talk about the process of it. Mm-hmm. Certainly novel writing is this incredibly solo act, mm-hmm. right? I'm not in front of the room. I'm not engaging live in the moment with the humans. Right. I'm by myself trying to hammer it out. And I don't get to share it until it's much more complete. That's not a process that I enjoy as much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The other part of it, I think, has to do with what I'm saying about being the arbiter of truth. I think yeah. it's not insignificant that I've been so fascinated by records that already exist mm-hmm. and wanting to interpret them in my artistic craft but to create the record it's really daunting and i think i'm over i'm overthinking that i mean not overthinking maybe appropriately thinking about that oh yeah because i mean yes in a sense it's it's just for me and the and the young the young girl that i was but it's also for i mean my my niece is 15 and lives mm. there and mm-hmm. is a brown girl <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um, mildly biblical. <laughs> exactly. And I firmly believe that there are untold stories of American teens that the country doesn't want to admit exist. Yeah. Um, I say American teens, I care about teenagers a lot, I care about young people, but I mean people, <laughs> for mm-hmm. those of you who aren't mm-hmm. as passionate about young people, Americans <laughs> mm-hmm. that don't, that aren't permitted to exist within the confines of how we define our culture. Mm-hmm. And we exist as children and as young people and then eventually adults, and we get lost. Mm-hmm. And we have to make a career out of interpreting ourselves yeah. for other people. Is there like a sense of responsibility towards those folks with this writing? Yeah, it's it's a sense of responsibility towards. I mean, as much as you you know you started this by talking about how I, I you describe my work as representing visibility without explanation. Mm-hmm. I keep slipping into explanation, ah, or the fear of it, or the fear to explain to be legible. 
Mm-hmm. I really want this to be legible, and I think that's getting in my way. I think I have to keep doing what I've been doing, which is to yeah. just write it and let it live, and then mm-hmm. it will be legible. Mm-hmm. But it feels so important that other people understand it, that it's really crushing. Yeah. Can I offer you something? Please. I. This feels a little whatever to say on the podcast, but <laughs> I had a 40th birthday party last year. You did me the honor of coming to the party and the what happened at the party is that there was a talent show people shared performances of whatever they wanted to do it was a really good time thank you again for being there <laughs> and for doing not just me but the entire room the honor of sharing an excerpt from your novel and curious i mean this i can't i don't know how you would characterize that excerpt on the spectrum from experiential to explanatory but I can't tell you how many people came up to me that night, and I hope they came up to you too, and just told me how much they loved it. Oh, good. And how how much they connected with it. And no matter how you know specific or, or relatable or unrelatable you felt like that passage was. Um, and we don't have to go into the specifics of it if you don't want to, but it was... The the passage that you read was very, it was vulnerable. Yes. It was very vulnerable. Yeah. And everybody was like right there with you. Yeah. Um, so I know that was only, you know, two, three pages from the thing. But <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know, just to reflect back at you that the, the response to you, I mean, it, it's interesting to think about it in that performance that you did in the context of slam poetry because mm-hmm. i know it was not slam poetry mm-hmm. but because you are who you are you didn't read it flat you know what i You're mean right. you read it as the character in the book um well i also got an mfa in acting don't forget yeah. right <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and so when the book becomes a film obviously yeah, yes yes <laughs> um but i don't know i guess i just wanted to to reflect that back to you because i, I think the dilemma that you're describing, I connect with so much. Like on Family Ghosts, mm-hmm. for many, many years, people would come to me with their stories, and they would have a personal relationship with the story. Mm-hmm. And I was the storyteller. Mm-hmm. I was the, the <laughs> alchemist, right. right? And it was my mandate to not just the people listening to the show, but to myself to take the raw material and feel it as deeply as I could within the structure of audio narrative Mm -hmm. and then render that with as much grace and care as I possibly could. Mm. And in almost every case, the person who, whose story I was telling was not thrilled with the final product. Um, like wasn't happy with it. And I totally understand why. Mm. And, and this is candidly, this is the reason I don't do the show anymore because I could not take that feeling anymore because nobody's happy, right? They're not happy. I feel awful. And oftentimes, particularly towards the end, I felt like the quality of the show was getting stuck between my desire to alchemize and not betray them. And so you get this unfinished jagged middle audio mess but 
it strikes me that with what you're doing, I don't know, that it is okay to give yourself permission to be the arbiter of the truth. Mm. Because at the end of the day, this is a novel. Mm. You're not claiming it as memoir. You're not mm-hmm. That's true. declaring it as fact-checkable. <laughs> true. <laughs> Even though I'm sure a lot of it is. Yeah. If upon the typing of the last punctuation mark <laughs> on the last page, you can feel like you did right by the 14-year-old you, mm. I sometimes feel like that's the best you can hope for, you know? Wow. First of all, thank you for the compliment about reading the work. Absolutely. In fact, I think you're reminding me that actually felt really important in that moment to read the work aloud. And in this conversation, I'm like, it's crystallizing how important that is to my process. Mm. I'm like, oh, I should probably find more opportunities to do that so that I can keep going because I actually need to be heard in the room in order to feel like the work is happening and and is valid. Well, as you were describing that, I thought there's something that I kind of fundamentally missed about your journey to the microphone. Oh. Which is, yes, I'm sure it must have felt really good to go from writing your reflections late at night to presiding. Yes. But you've also changed contexts. Right. You are you have an audience now. Right. And right. <laughs> that means it's not just writing anymore, it's something else. And now in taking on the novel, you have gone back to it's just writing. Right. So I I think I I didn't clock that subtlety. Yeah. I and I I didn't either and this is really helping me figure that out. Um so thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for the reflection. I that's I will take that home. <laughs> um I will say what I chose to read, I was not concerned with legibility. I was like, Good. this is a Good. this is a late night birthday party. <laughs> I can read an excerpt about masturbation. <laughs> It'll be fine. Everyone's drunk. <laughs> okay. Since you have revealed that, I just want to say that my favorite thing about the way that you told me what you were going to read is you were like, I'm going to read this thing. And you were like, it's a little wet. <laughs> oh, right. I forgot that And part. I thought you meant that the ink wasn't dry. That's what I meant. That is what I meant. <laughs> but then it also ended up being <laughs> horny. <laughs> yes. Uh, keeps giving. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yes, that is, that is really validating. That's a really good reminder. And thank you for relating mm-hmm. as a creator. Yeah, I spend so much time being concerned about i'll call it the collaboration mm-hmm. mm. you know and yeah. that i mean that's something i noticed about your practice in family ghost is i i f- i found you to be a really incredible collaborator thank you in a in a structure that could have easily been very extractive that means a lot that means a lot thank you and and collaboration is messy and yeah. is uh, requires a lot of relationship development, mm-hmm. which is hard to keep on schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I also don't want to get lost in you know us kicking around these ideas because I hope that there's a lot of people listening to this who yeah. are countenancing similar challenges. Yeah, that as much as I think it is incumbent on the creator in a fictional context to answer their own questions, to serve themselves yeah. in order to find their way to something that will, at the very least, be fulfilling to them. Mm-hmm. Because who knows what everybody else is going to feel. Mm-hmm. To do that with a spirit of collaboration, yeah. even if you are in collaboration with a fictive story 
informed by <laughs> non-fictive events, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is weird mm-hmm. um, and confusing. Mm-hmm. That is the only way to get there and not yeah. hurt people. Yeah. Well, and, you know, just now I'm going back to your observation about the difference between myself and my 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 family, my mother and grandmother and their practice, which you said uh, something like their art was a was a way to be with their solitude. Mm. And for me, my art is a way out of it. And I think collaboration is the difference. I think inherently ah. I found my voice as a creative through the collaborative process, whether it's collaborating with an audience or literally collaborating with other makers. That's where I feel, I think I said this earlier, but valid and valued, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to do anything without other people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I like what the proverbial we make together. You didn't know this, but this was a therapy session to help me figure out how to get back to my book. <laughs> if it can be that, I'm, I'm very happy to. <laughs> um, so in order for me to get back to it, I need to find the collaboration in it, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thanks. It, my pleasure. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for sharing your work, broadly speaking, and for doing it the hard way. Yeah, it is. It is hard, but it's so worth it. Yeah. The last question is: Do you have a mantra? Hmm. So, am I about to share this very vulnerable? <laughs> <laughs> now I've opened my mouth. Um, I mean, I'm going to go back to sort of like womanist thought. Okay. And this, like, sort of radical sense of self. I have had a long stigmatized relationship with the idea of selfishness, which, I mean, that's cultural, right? Like, that's it's a bad word, right? You don't want to be selfish. Oh, how selfish? That person's selfish. But breaking down the sort of root of the word and thinking about... You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. <laughs> thinking yeah. about an allegiance to self in order to fulfill my own needs... Mm-hmm. be in better relationship. Mm-hmm. I really had to reclaim that concept. And recently I've been really thinking about selfishness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the kids say these days, I'm in my selfish era. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a, there's a series of little thoughts I have to myself these days about like, like I might I might be confronted with something where I feel like I'm losing my my spine around a decision. But like, what do they think? Oh, selfish era, selfish era, selfish era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> or mm-hmm. related to that, I might just say, who cares? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. I care so much. You know who cares? I care. Right. What might be something that you would say who cares about? I mean, you know, for for working professionals and the creative arts and gigs, it's like advocating for myself in a contract. And like, what is this email going to sound like to other people? Who cares? Uh-huh. You know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Or maybe it's a creative thought and it's like... Yeah, this is a really wet line. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes when we are our most selfish, yeah. we are most legible? Yeah. Because I think everybody recognizes, everybody has those thoughts. Yeah. But artists say them. That's right. Yes. And I need to remember that. Me too. <laughs> Let's both do that. Let's both do that. <laughs> Thank you, Kiria Traber. (laughs) Thank you so much.
Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Kirya Traber for joining me on the show this week. Remember that you can get free tickets for Kirya's latest theatrical endeavor, Beyond Punishment, at the link in the show notes. Reminder that you can check me out on this podcast again on Friday for our weekly Good Company segment. That is the weekly episode where we hang out one-on-one and and just kind of reflect on the themes that have come up in the interview episodes of The Midnight Disease. I'd love to talk to you there and also on Substack, samdingman.substack.com, where I'm publishing weekly essays and stories about radio and storytelling and memory, and it would mean a lot to me if you read them, samdingman.substack.com. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins, and I thank you so much for letting your madness ride with mine. I'll talk to you on Friday, and until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.